Welcome to this message from Journey Church. Our hope is that you'd encounter God and His purpose for your journey. Be sure to visit us online at www.journeykc.com. get into this last week of It Takes a Body, and I believe we have a video to start that off, so let's go ahead and roll that video. We wanted to share with you some experiences that we had at City Union Mission Camp in the Ozarks, which is an inner city camp for underprivileged kids coming from Kansas City. Um, We, as a church, have gone down for a couple of years serving these children, and we wanted to let you know some of the experiences we had at camp this summer. This year at Camp Camacito, my job was laundry and canteen. And I, whereas I was excited about that, then as, the, as I got there, I realized I, maybe I was in the wrong role and I wasn't that thrilled about doing this particular task. But as the week went on, I realized how important this job to the everyday function of camp really is. And if I wasn't there to do that job, then there would be a big hole in the camp function. And I started to see how every job at camp is very important. And it does help um, the campers, the counselors, everyone there. I've had the chance to serve at Camp Concedo for three summers. Uh, My favorite memory from this past summer was during the Exploring for Truth period uh, with the campers. Uh, One of the particular boys named Dylan had lots of energy and was not necessarily paying attention or getting the point of the illustration, the message, the time that we had uh, with the campers. Um, So during this period, uh, the the kids were going to get their hands dirty and then we were going to illustrate how Jesus washes away our sins by washing their hands clean. Um, For boys, getting their hands dirty is not a big deal. They love doing that. Um, But getting them clean sometimes um, is not as easy. And Dylan just was not paying attention. Luckily, there was a faucet right next to where we were doing the illustration at. So we turned that full blast, full blast, and Dylan got his hands clean. Um, At that time, I came over to the group and asked Dylan why he was so wet, because of course he was also playing in the faucet. And he looked up at me and said, because Jesus loves me. Um, That touched my heart because before camp, that was my prayer for the campers, that they would know how much Jesus loves them. This was my first time to serve at Camp Comcedo, so I was a little nervous when I first got there, uh, but I, I was assigned four amazing girls. God picked just the right ones. I know they were meant to be with me. Erin in particular, she had a lot of anger issues, a lot of home issues. I know her dad was in jail, and to see her grow through the week from Bible study and verses and songs, uh, she learned about praying. We, play, we prayed for Grandma Gigi. Um, we played games, and when we would be doing our little crafts and activities, then I would catch her later in the week singing the songs, singing the verses. So it really made an impact on not just them, but me. The last two nights when I would tuck her in, and if I would stand up uh, without saying the prayer right away, she would say, don't forget our prayer, and I love you to infinity. And that just really, really got me. And it let me know that God's work uh, planted some great seeds in her. and It was well worth it. Uh, One of the main experiences that I've had at camp that has just been a huge blessing to me is there was a time one summer where I was sitting with a camper who was having discipline issues and um, just felt like the Holy Spirit was telling me to let them know, like, the reason why it's important that we... Um, learn about Jesus at camp is because you can't take the pony home and you can't take the pool home. The one thing you can take home is Jesus. And this year I had the opportunity to serve as Bible teacher the first week um, this summer. 
And it was just amazing to me how spending a week breaking down the gospel simplistically for these kiddos um, touched me also. Just realizing back to the basics, man, we cannot save ourselves. God is the, is the ultimate rescuer. And just how amazing it was to send those kiddos home with um, those seeds planted within them. Because we don't know what God is going to do um, to water them or to what, but we are not um, responsible for those, for what happens after that moment. We're just responsible for what God has called us to and being faithful in that moment. And lots of seeds were planted this summer. And we just thank you so much for praying for us as we went to camp because we know that God worked through those prayers. Thanks. Yeah, let's give the Lord a hand for that. All right, this is uh, sermon three of five for me today, so let's go and pray. This is kind of halftime. Uh, Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in our church and being able to be a part of all that you're doing. Lord, we thank you for changed lives, for seeds planted, for, for uh, seeds that have been watered. And Lord, we just know that you're going to bring the increase. We trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen. This is uh, week four of It Takes a Body. And that, that idea of planting seeds and watering seeds comes from a certain place in Scripture, from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. It starts off and says, What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field and God's building. Now, no matter where you're at in life, doesn't matter how big a ministry you have or how, any, how much influence you have, how do you guys know that every single person here can plant a seed in somebody's life? You don't have to have some big platform to do that. Every single person here can water a seed in somebody's life. It doesn't matter how, how many people you speak to or how many friends you have. There's some place in your life that God can always... How do you guys recognize a time in your life when God put you in that position and you weren't an opportunity to water a seed or to plant a seed in somebody? All of us can participate participate in that. I love this story that I heard a long time ago. I've shared it before. It's a story about a Sunday school teacher who, in 1858, he led a, he led a, a Boston shoe clerk to the Lord named Dwight L. Moody. Now, Dwight L. Moody went on, and he had a big evangelistic ministry, and, and uh, he went on to reach thousands and thousands of people. And in 1879, he uh, led, awakened kind of an, an, a zeal for the Lord in a guy named Frederick B. Myers. Now, you may not know all of these names, but I'll just tell you that, that several of these people had a great impact in the kingdom of God. And Frederick B. Myers, he, he became a small church pastor, but eventually he began to minister in American college campuses. And as he was ministering into an American... Uh, on American college campuses, he led a student named J. Wilbur Chapman to the Lord. Now, J. Wilbur Chapman eventually became involved in the YMCA, and he began to preach the gospel, and he employed a guy named Billy Sunday, who was a former baseball player, uh, who had a great, it turned out, out to have this great ministry to thousands of people, and he asked him to come and to help him do some revivals. And so as he was doing some revivals, one time he went to a place in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he began to lead a revival, and, and the students in that area got so excited for the Lord, that even after Billy Sunday left, they invited a new, another revivalist to come back in named Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham, as he was preaching, he led a young man named Billy Graham to the Lord. 
Now, many of us have heard of Billy Graham, even if you haven't heard of all those other people. And, and just from the years of 1947 to 1977, uh, Billy Graham spoke in person to over 53 million people, just in that 30-year span. That doesn't include radio. It doesn't include television. And during that time, during that span of time, uh, there was 1.6, over 1.6 million people who recorded decisions for the Lord in that time. Now, you guys know that's pretty fantastic. That's pretty amazing. But, and we can look at Billy Graham and his platform, but I always love to look back and you trace it all the way back through to that Sunday school teacher named Mr. Kimball, who stepped out and said, I'm going to plant a seed. I'm going to look at who's in front of me and I'm going to plant a seed or I'm going to water a seed. And so I don't know if we have any Billy Grahams in the room today, but I do think we have some Mr. Kimballs in this room. How many of you guys would agree with that? Somebody who can plant a seed. And here's what I want you to know, that it doesn't matter what your platform is. It doesn't matter who's in front of you, that God didn't create you for the sidelines. God created you for the front lines. Let me say that again. God didn't create you for the sidelines. God created you for the front lines. Now, your front line may look different than someone else's front line, but I can tell you this, he definitely didn't create you for the sidelines. And he wants you to start planting some seeds, to start watering some seeds, to start getting in the game. And so we, we've got to be on the front lines. Now, here's what I will tell you, that God won't be able to put you in certain front lines if you're in the wrong chair. Now, we'll talk about what these chairs may represent here in just a little bit. But whatever chair you're sitting in determines what front line you're able to get on. Okay, And so, have you guys have heard of the story of Moses and the Israelites where God calls Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery from the Egyptians? The, the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for 430 years. Let that sink in for just a little bit. Not just a, a few years were they slaves. Not just a few decades were they slaves. Not, it, was, it was century after century after century they were slaves. It's all they'd ever known. Every person that you could ever remember in your family tree had been a slave. Every single person, your grandfather, your great-grandfather, his grandfather, everybody, generation after generation. And as far as you knew, from, from there on out, your children would be slaves, your grandchildren would be slaves, and, and it would just go on forever. So this is all you ever know. And so here comes this guy named Moses who has this crazy idea that, hey, God told me to come and to set us all free after 430 years. How many of you guys might think he's a little crazy? Well, they did too after a while. And, but how many of you guys know the end of the story? The end of the story is God did these miracles. He, you know, set the people free. And so they cross the Red Sea and they end up in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, if you're in the wilderness for 40 years, how many of you guys know that wasn't God's best for them? God didn't take them out of Egypt just to wander in the wilderness, and yet they stayed there by their own choice for 40 years because of the decisions that they were making. So I asked the question, what would, what would motivate you to be stuck in that second best? What would motivate you to do that? I think that all of us wrestle with the same questions at different areas of our life. When God does something amazing in our life, and then we don't move beyond that, and we get, set, we, we get comfortable settling for God's second best in our life. Instead of God's perfect will, we settle for God's permissible will, and it's not, it's not what God had for this. Now, let me, let me just, just kind of back up the backstory of them being slaves for 430 years. Think about that. God came and rescued them out of Egypt, and he brings them out of Egypt and, and does this amazing thing. It's like their whole life had changed. Uh, it's like their whole identity had changed. No longer were they slaves. How many of you guys know that's what Jesus did for us when we went from darkness to light? Our whole identity had changed. I mean, it, it was not just that our situation had changed, but their whole identity had changed. For us, when we get saved, it's like 
we, become, we get a new social security number. It's like the, the Bible says that the old man is gone and there's a brand new person there. It's like we get brand new fingerprints. We get a new DNA strand. How many of you guys know that's a pretty good deal? That's what Jesus did for us. Now, we can trace all these things back to a promise or several promises that God had uh, that is tied into communion. You know, when the early church would take communion and take Passover and they would do Passover, it wasn't with the little thimble cup that we use now. It was actually a full-blown meal, and they would have four cups that would be taken at this meal at different times. And each one of these cups meant something significant. And they were all tied back to this event of God leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And they were based on four I will statements found in Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 6. It says, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So when they would receive Passover, they would connect each cup back to one of these promises. The first promise, was, or the first cup, was the cup of sanctification. It could be, maybe represented as this first chair. So basically, that God, and it meant this. It meant that it, it was the promise that I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That's a picture of salvation for us today. That God brought us out of the world. And that's what they were celebrating by drinking that first cup. This, the second cup was called the cup of deliverance. And it was based on this promise that says, I will deliver you from being slaves. See, God didn't want to just set them free from slavery. He wanted to set them free from a slavery mindset. And how many of you guys know those are two different things? You can be free externally and bound internally, can't you? You can be free on the outside circumstances and yet still have a mindset of being enslaved on the inside. And so what it really meant is God brought them out of Egypt But when he brought them to this next, I will deliver you, he wanted to get the Egypt out of them. He brought them out of Egypt, but they still had some Egypt on the inside of them. And how many of you guys know that that can happen with us? We can get saved, but then all of a sudden we still have a lot of the world in us, don't we? See, God doesn't want us just to get saved. Just, I mean, yes, as great as that is, as all those things that come with it, the grace of God is so amazing, but there's still some world in us that has to get out of us. He doesn't want to just sanctify us, the cup of sanctification. He wants to deliver us, the cup of deliverance. The third cup was the cup of redemption. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. See, God's redemption, once he saves us, he takes us out of Egypt, and then he gets the Egypt out of us, he brings us over to the cup of redemption, where the cup of redemption is all about preparing us for what God made us for. And he redeems us, and he's buying that process of preparing us for his purposes. And the fourth cup, it was called the cup of praise, or literally it would be called the cup of halal. And what it really literally meant was the cup of fulfillment. For us as New Covenant believers, it's the abundant life in Christ. We say it this way, real life in Christ. This is where you're living the dream that God has for you, where you're fulfilling your purposes. And so there's this whole process of these four stages of getting out of Egypt, of getting the Egypt out of us, of preparing for God's purpose, and then living God's purpose. You may be able to identify where you're at and which chair or which cup you're drinking from today. You may completely say, well, I, I think I'm in this chair right now. Or you may come over and you're like, okay, well, I'm on the process of getting the world out of me right now, but I'm definitely not living the purposes of God. See, the way we look at it here at Journey Church is our mission statement to see people far from God, rescued with real life in Christ. I look at it as a spectrum. 
On this side, we have people far from God. On this side over here, this is what it's like to live real life in Christ. Every single person in this room today is somewhere along that spectrum. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you can figure out where you're at for yourself. And so they had been out of Egypt, and as great as that was, that was still just the first cup. Can I just tell you today that many believers, maybe even this room, you've got out of the world, you've got saved, and you've been so thankful for the grace of God on your life that you decided to camp out there. You still got a lot of the world in you. You haven't been prepared for God's purpose, and you aren't living out the purposes of God. And as great as this is, there's still more cups. There's still more things that God has for each and every one of us. And I believe the problem is we've just set the bar for normal Christianity so low. We've set it so low that if you just get in the door, that's like the win. You know, and that is a big win. But how many of you guys know God didn't create us for the sidelines. He created us for the front lines. He didn't create us just to get our foot in the door. He created us to live his purpose. He created us for John 10, 10. It talks about the abundant life that God created us for. And so many of us are stuck in the first chair. Now, I'm going to transition this and help you see maybe where you fit on this, this journey uh, by using a different illustration. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, we see John writing, and he writes to a few different people. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. So he, he begins to write to different generations of people, fathers, young people, children. And why does he do this? Well, because they were that way in the natural. But how many of you guys know that the Bible talks about it that way spiritually? Like you can be a spiritual father. You can be a spiritual young adult. You can be a spiritual child. Or you can be spiritually dead, right? I was reading a book uh, on discipleship this week, and, and the guy put it this way. He talked about these different categories, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase some of this stuff. But we could look at it like this. Somebody today may be in this room, and this chair over here represents you're spiritually lost. You're spiritually lost. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're in this room today, and you're just checking out this Jesus thing. Maybe you're in this room today, and, and you don't know where you stand with God. You don't know, you know, you've maybe been in church, but, but you're in this chair, and you're hoping that you're getting out of Egypt. You may or may not know you're spiritually lost. You may say, well, Sean, that's kind of insulting to call me lost. I don't think it's insulting at all, because the Bible talks so much about that God cares for the lost, that God's pursuing the lost, that Jesus cares so much about the one that's lost that he left the 99 to go find it. The lost means that you have value, that you are being pursued. And if you're spiritually lost today, I want you to know that Jesus is pursuing you today. If you have ears to hear and open up your heart, Jesus is pursuing you because he values you that much. So some of the characteristics of a person sitting in this chair may be that you, you haven't really accepted Christ. Maybe, maybe you've rejected God at some point in your life, or maybe you even claim to know God, but you really don't. Maybe you claim to be spiritual. How many of you guys know people who claim to be spiritual? Just because you claim to be spiritual doesn't mean that you know God. And sometimes we can identify what chair you're sitting in by things you might say. So some people in this chair might say something like this, I believe there are many ways to heaven. Somebody in this chair might say, I'm a good person. Somebody in this chair might say, I think there's a higher power. Somebody in this chair might say, I'm just really kind of too busy for this God thing right now in my life. And you can identify what chair you're in by some of the phrases you might hear yourself say. 
And so somebody today may be in this guest chair, and you're sitting kind of on the outside looking in. How many guys know if you have somebody over your house, you want to put out a good guest chair for them, right? You want to be a good host for them. And so that's why here at this church, if you are seeking Jesus, we, we want to be the type of church that we got a good guest chair sitting out for you. Isn't that the type of church that we want to be? And I don't care what you did last night, what you did yesterday. You can come into this place and you can seek out Jesus and you can, you can be uh, in our family. We'll wrap our arms around you. We just don't want you to stay in that chair, but we've got a big guest chair for you. And you say, come on, we'd love to have you. You know, I went into a, a church several years ago. I had a, a day off here from a Sunday, and so I decided to just go visit some other church in some other place. And, and so uh, I took my son with me, and we went into the church, and we walked through the doors, and not a single person greeted us. And we were, like, we were sticking out because they were all kind of in their little cliques, and we stood around for a while, and I was just trying to stand out awkwardly so that somebody would come over and notice me. And nobody did. So I went over by the food. I figured, hey, it's food. People are going to attract to the food. And I'm seeing all this through the eyes of a pastor, too, you know, so I'm thinking, man, I hope our church isn't like this. And so I went in and, and went into the auditorium, and the only person who spoke to me all day was the person who shoved a, a bulletin in my, my uh, hands and said, here, as I walked in, I went through the sermon, went out, tried to hang out for a little bit, not a soul contacted me or anything, and I thought, man, that, I hope our church isn't like that. I'd never want to have that experience. But then I also thought, I hope we're not spiritually like that with the lost, I hope that we have a big open door for people that we don't close our eyes to the lost. We want to have, if you're in that boat today, we want to have an open door for you today. And then we've got the next chair, which is more like a spiritual infant or a spiritual child. How many of you guys have kids? How many of you guys know that kids aren't very clean most of the time? They can make messes, can't they? They can, they can uh, screw things up. They don't really care about what your schedule is. They don't care about your time frame. They don't care about your agenda. They're kids. It's all about them mostly all the time. If they don't get what they want, if they don't get the right food that day, it's all about them. These are the type of people that maybe you're a new believer and you come and you're a spiritual child. Maybe, maybe you're, you're kind of you know, starting to apply the principles of God, but you're just on the starting phase. But let me say this. You don't have to be a new believer to be sitting in this chair. You could be a, a believer for 30 years and still be all about you. You could be sitting in this chair as a spiritual infant or a spiritual child, and, and it could still all be about you for 30 years or for the rest of your life. And let me just tell you, the sad truth is a lot of people get into this chair and never move beyond it. Everything's about me. The music's got to be about me. The, the people have to be about me. The, you know, it's all about me. If, the, if I'm not getting fed, if I'm not getting liked, if I don't have friends, you know, it's all about me. Some of the phrases that might help you identify whether you're sitting in this chair, you might hear somebody say something like this, Christians are hypocrites. You might hear somebody say, I'm a good person. A loving God would never send me to hell. You might hear somebody say, the church just wants my money. You might hear somebody say, I'm too busy for a real life group. You might hear somebody in this chair say, I love, even positive things like, well, I love my church because I feel like I belong. Can you hear the language in this though? It's like, I love my church because I feel like I belong. Somebody in this might say, my, my group is great. They make me feel really welcome. Somebody might say, in this chair might say, I'm upset about having to branch off my real life group because I was just starting to make friends. Now, those things are pretty strong statements, I realize. But if you're sitting in this chair, it's because it's all about you. Now, listen, we all sit in this chair, don't we, from time to time? Listen, on any given day, any one of us could be sitting in any one of these chairs, can't we? 
Our hope is that we move beyond a spiritual child and that we begin to grow up and begin to, to move beyond that. And then we go to this chair over here, which is like a spiritual young adult. Now, this is really a big shift where it stops just being about me and it starts to be about me and other people. And they start to get an awareness. You know, there's, it's kind of like a maturity thing begins to happen. Now, the thing about this chair, and I pulled this chair from my office. Uh, Nikki uh, bought this for me. This is a metal chair. It's extremely uncomfortable. And uh, it's, it's actually for the people who come into my office. And anybody who sits in this too long is going to require a healing service afterwards because it, it's very painful. Uh, they're actually designed to keep you out of my office. That's what it's designed to, that you won't stay very long. Uh, and it works. Uh, but, but what does this chair do? If I'm sitting in this chair, I'm uncomfortable. I mean, I'm starting to, it's starting to work on me and to reveal things about my attitude. If I sit in this too long, all of a sudden the real me has to start coming out. And so this is a chair that I get into that any of us might get into where we start to mature. That I was uh, in between services and, and Mike, one of our worship leaders, he said, he goes, uh, Sean, is it intentional that there's so much distance in between this chair and this chair? And I said, no, but that's a great point. It seems to take a lot for people to move from this chair over to this chair, where it, starts, where it stops being all about me, but it starts to be about other people. And the edges get worn off of you a little bit. You get uncomfortable, and God begins to start working on you. Somebody in this chair might begin to say something like this, I'm going to go visit Bob in the hospital tonight rather than going to the movies. There's just a subtle shift. Somebody in this chair might say, I'm serving in the nursery so that some other parents can attend the service. You can see there, there's kind of a working out of things going on. They might say something like this, I need to branch out my group, but no one else is ready to lead. And so you can kind of hear yourself somewhere along the way in your discipleship journey and your walk with God. And then you finally get over to the spiritual adult or the spiritual parent. And if you're in this place, I mean, hopefully you, you've got a a solid understanding of the Word of God. You're applying the principles of God. And no longer is it about just, you know, uh, me and uh, kind of about us, but then it becomes about other people. And you begin to say some things like this, like, I'm, st I'm taking Steve with me the next time I visit Bob in the hospital so he can learn how to do ministry. You, you say things like, I've got a couple potential leaders in my life that I'm trying to raise up and send out. Can you hear how it becomes, it shifts to become about all about other people? No longer are we concerned about what will happen to me, but it becomes a concern with what will happen to the next generation or the next group or the next people coming along. Now, the Bible says very clearly that we all are going to find ourselves somewhere in here. And in fact, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the verses right before plant and water that we read at the beginning, he says this, he says in verse 1, he says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He's saying, you guys are in this chair here, spiritual children. And he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. How many of you guys know you can't feed a baby a steak? you got to mush it up a little bit for him, right? And so he goes, I couldn't feed you solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What he's saying here is this. First of all, you can identify what chair you're in by what's going on in your life. And he clearly says here that if, you, if you're finding yourself being jealous all the time, if you find yourself in strife with other people, 
in contentions all the time, this is your chair. This is where you're at. He goes on to say, if you're taking sides with leadership in a church or issues in your life, and you find yourself always taking sides, he says, this is where you're at. Now, here's the problem with this. Because a lot of people who sit in this chair think they're in that chair. There's many times when I've, I, in my life, I wanted to think. In fact, when we first started ministry, I thought I was in this chair. But situations would happen that would reveal in my life, I was really over there, but I was talking like I was over here. How many of you guys know what I'm saying? I wanted to be here, but, but I wasn't. I was sitting over there, and it was coming out in my life, right? And the problem when we think we're here, but we're actually over here, is that we think we're, we're digesting really spiritual food, but we're not. We think we're growing more than we are, but we're not, because we're really spiritual children that can't handle the deeper things of God. And we wonder why we can't digest the deeper things of God and why things aren't moving in our life and why there aren't more people in, in our life, because we're really right here. Now, I heard this statement, and I love this statement because it, it, uh, it really reveals some things. It is this, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you really are. So in other words, we've got a lot of people who are sitting in this chair talking about being over there and trying to teach people that. But really, if you look around the fruit of your life, and if you look around at everybody around you and they're spiritual children and they're acting like spiritual children all the time, that's probably what you've been reproducing in your life. Because you can tell everybody about what you know, but you only reproduce disciples by who you really are. If you look at your family, and you, you, you're talking a good game over here, but you look at what you're producing, see, you can teach what you know, but you reproduce who you really are. And so it's important for us to identify where we really are so that we can move to the next place. Now, what happens, one of the worst things that happens in a family or in a church is when we start to get divisions because of the me seat, because of that. And Paul says, that's not the way to go. And even though we find ourselves in this seat or this seat or that seat or that seat, here's what I want you to know. There's always a temptation to get comfortable in the seat you're in, isn't there? You see, we look at the Israelites and we're saying, why did they wander around for 40 years? It's because eventually it got comfortable and they were okay with it. They got so used to that new lifestyle. There's a temptation to be comfortable in the seat that you're in. Now, when we first started to, you know, hear from God about planting this church, I started to talk to different pastors in my life, and they began to quote uh, the statistics. They say things like, you know that last year 4,000 churches closed. You know that uh, 80% of church plants fail. You know that 80% of people who begin in the ministry won't be in the ministry five years from now. And I'm like, that was great encouragement. Thank you. And so I came down here, and I started to talk to different pastors, and I literally had some of them say, why are you even coming here? And I, like literally, and I'm like, thank you for that encouragement. I remember this uh, one particular conversation I had, and, and somebody said, this, this pastor said, he goes, uh, there's, a, there's a, a church plant in every school in Liberty, so good luck. And then he quoted all the statistics, the 4,000 people, 80%. And I'm like, thank you for that encouragement. That's great. And we started off with nothing, just a few people in my living room, no money, no nothing, no, nothing. But here's what I know. God has been faithful to Journey Church. We look today, and there'll be over 500 people that come through the doors today. That's amazing. That's amazing. We, uh, we've just seen, uh, like, our real life groups, like we talk about, we, we filled up this building, and they started to have to shoot into homes because there's, there's too many 
people coming and, and because we're making room for more. That's amazing. This year, we're on track to give well over $50,000 to missions this year. That's amazing. From, from where we were to be able to do that this year, that's so exciting to be able to support families in Ethiopia like we are, to be able to support Hillcrest like we've got our, our Hillcrest food drive where we're supporting a whole apartment there for somebody in transitional housing this year, to be able to partner with our Link Association to plant churches around the country. I've got a, a friend of mine, too, who is getting ready to plant in Nashville, Tennessee this January. We'll be able to partner with him to launch a gospel-filled, spirit-filled church in Nashville, Tennessee. That's awesome. That's exciting. There's so many things that are going on. We, we had Jacob Lears here last week who is on the ground laying the groundwork for one of the first major works in Djibouti, Africa and planting a YWAM base. We're one of the seven churches, only seven churches that are able to help them launch that in an area that's 99.6% unreached for the gospel. They're having Muslims get saved. I had a, a friend of mine call me uh, last week. He's a guy who started a bunch of Bible colleges. He has 50 Bible colleges across the world. 50 Bible colleges, thousands of, of people in these Bible colleges. They're having people, they have Bible colleges in Egypt and Muslims getting saved and transforming the spiritual landscape of churches as they receive in these Muslims and people are coming to Christ. He calls me up and he says, listen, I've got doors in places like Iraq and these hard places to go and, and we have more doors than we have finances. And he said, you're the first pastor that I called. And we'll get to help them launch more Bible college campuses in hard places and all over the world. What an amazing thing to be a part of all that God is doing. Last month, we did the Blessed Life series. You guys remember the Blessed Life series where we talked about opening up our hand in generosity. And I don't know what anybody gives here, but they give me just kind of reports of overall numbers. And, and we have been averaging a certain amount in our giving for the first six months of, of this year. And so I finally just got July's number. It was almost double in one month what, what we had been doing and receiving. Like a 90-something percent. Yeah, let's give God the glory for that. Somebody got free. Amen. And, and if you think about that, that means somebody got free in generosity. And I've heard story after story outside of the church and outside of giving to the church of generosity happening everywhere. That's amazing, isn't it? So if that trend keeps up, if you keep faithful in that, we'll be able to give much more to missions than the number I just said. And that's an amazing thing to partner with what God is doing all over the, the globe. And have you guys know, that's great, isn't it? To start with nothing to all these things I just mentioned. But you know what? As good as that is, that's why there's a temptation to sit down, isn't it? And to say, look at all God is doing. But I'm trying to tell you this morning that because God has done so much, we can't stay where we are. Because God has been so faithful, we have to keep moving. Because God isn't just for the, God wants us to be able to give way more than 50,000 to missions. Because have you guys know, there's a lost and dying world out there that needs to be reached for the gospel, and he wants us to be a key player in it. Have you guys know that here in, in Liberty and the surrounding regions, God wants to bring spiritual transformation, and he wants to raise up an army of people to do it. Not just 10 real life groups, but, but 30 or 50. And not, not just people who are, are uh, even just huddling up in real life groups, but evangelists who are going out into their homes and into the workplaces. He wants us to raise up and to do that. And, and there's a temptation to stay where we are. There's a temptation in your spiritual walk with God. And I know it seems counterintuitive because you say, no, I want to grow in God. Well, I know you do, but there's always a temptation to stay where you are. And so no matter where you are today, I just want to encourage you to take another step, to take a step forward. There, there's a story in uh, 
In, in uh, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, actually, three different occurrences of the same story where Jesus is getting ready to go have the last supper, the Passover, and he sends uh, two disciples in, and he says, you're going to go into town, and there's going to be a colt that's never been ridden, and I want you to untie it and take it. And if someone asks you what it's for, you say, the Lord has need of it. So think about this. Jesus just asked them to steal. Uh, it's the way my brain works. And uh, so they go in there, and there's the colt, just like Jesus said. They untie it. They start to take it, and sure enough, somebody says, hey, where are you going with that? And he says, the Lord has need of it. Can I just tell you, there's a picture in there for us. I'm telling you, as good as it is, wherever you're at, whatever seat you're at, the Lord has need of you. God didn't create you for the sidelines. He created you for the front lines. And where you find yourself sitting today determines what front line you can actually be on. If you're in this chair or this chair, you're not going to have too much to water or too much to plant. It's whenever we start moving closer over here. Now, here's what I want to, want to tell you. Because some people, you may find yourself in this chair today. Don't be discouraged today. You don't go from this chair all the way to this chair overnight. You go there step by step. And if you find yourself in this chair or this chair today, here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take a step. That's it. You don't have to leap over there. Just take a step. Because the problem is whenever we settle in one chair, we really start to drift. And how many of you guys know that you never drift upwards, you only drift backwards? You're not going to drift up a chair, you're going to drift down a chair. And so we can never just coast and drift. We always just take one step at a time. Let me close up with this story. I don't have the worship team come back up. There's a guy named Thomas Carlyle, and, and he was writing the, this big book called The History of the French Revolution. And this was in a time when there was no typewriters, there was no computers, and so he had to handwrite the manuscript, manuscript, and he did three years of research for this thing. He handwrites the manuscript painstakingly, and he hands it off to a friend of his, John Stuart Mills, to edit and to proofread. And so this guy, John, he had a lot going on, and for whatever reason, he didn't get to the manuscript for a while, and it sat around. And the true story, the maid comes through to clean up, and she thinks that the manuscript is there to start fires with. True story. And so she takes the manuscript, and she burns the manuscript. And, and Thomas, he heard about this, and he literally went into a depression. He was depressed. I mean, he had been working on this. Everything is all lost. He went into depression for weeks. He closed up in his house. He closed up the blinds. And then finally, a few weeks later, he, one day he opened up the blind, and he looked across the street, and there was somebody who was building a, a building. And it was a bricklayer, and he was taking bricks, and he was beginning to build a building. And he saw the big building that they were getting ready to build. And in that moment, he got inspired. And he, he woke up for a second, and he said, you know, if he can build that building one brick at a time, then I can rewrite this story one page at a time. And so that's what he did. And that became one of the, it became a, a, one of the great classics of historical literature today. And so I use that illustration today to say, you don't have to make a leap today. You just need to, one brick, one brick at a time. If you find that it's all about you, just ask the Holy Spirit today to say, Lord, what's that brick for me? If you find yourself kind of stuck in limbo or over here, what's that brick for me? And I, I believe that every single person here, the Holy Spirit can reveal just one brick, just one step, just one thing to help us to move beyond the chair we've been sitting at. 
So let's just take a moment as we stand up. Just ask the Holy Spirit. Say, what's my brick? What's my step? So here's what I know. Every single person here can plant and water. Every single person here, I want you to know that God didn't create you for the sidelines. He created you for the front lines. So Holy Spirit, we ask you right now to reveal, to speak, to show yourself strong. Some of you guys, you might have a face come to your mind right now, some, some person that you're supposed to interact with. Some of you might, you might see yourself doing something. You might hear God speak something. You might kind of have a confirmation in your spirit about something that you've been wrestling with. Some of you guys might just get an idea, just pop into your head right now. And I would, I would suggest to listen to that. That's most likely the Holy Spirit. You say, Lord, what can I do? What's my next brick? And Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. And we celebrate the faithfulness of our, uh, that you've done in our lives. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, I thank you for every person here that you have a purpose and a plan. Lord, help us to see it with clearer eyes today. Help us to be encouraged today as we walk out of this place that no matter what chair we're in, we can continue to take a step. Lord, we thank you for that. And in Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship you. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. For more information about Journey Church or to browse our media library, visit us online at journeykc.com.